Well, good morning. How are we doing? Doing good. Hey, my name is Britton. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, you guys hold on one second. All right, you guys good? Man, it's Steve. Man, what's up? I miss you guys. I wish I was there. I'm going to be honest with you. No offense, Buckley. Phyllis, how you doing? I know you're sitting right down here. I'm so pumped you're here. So, Manistee, I miss you guys. I bet it's beautiful there. Coast life, you know, I'm up here in Buckley. So, you know, we got to give them some time to miss y'all. All right. Love you guys, Manistee. All right. Hey, Buckley, how we doing? We're doing good? Sorry. We'd have a moment. All right. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but we have an incredible campus in Manistee that I get to serve at. And uh, sorry, but it's beautiful there. And you guys live in Bucktucky. And uh, so, no, I'm excited to be hanging out with you guys this weekend. So, uh, but we talk about this invite stuff and I can't help but think through over the past kind of few weeks that we've been talking about this as a staff of when have I been invited, right? And I've told this story, I think here, and I've told it in Manistee, but it, it, it needs repeating again of the time I was invited because this was a moment, a simple moment in my life that changed everything. I remember it just like it was yesterday. I just got done with class and I was headed down the stairs and headed across the quad to go get some lunch, right? No surprise. And, uh, but I'm walking across this quad and I see this girl walking um, this direction. And you guys know anybody that just walks annoying, right? You just see them and you're like, man, they are way too happy to be awake right now. And she's walking across the campus and I'm like, I just hope she doesn't talk to me. Like, what, just like hood on, international sign for leave me alone, his headphones in, like I'm just going to get some food. But she comes up and she's like, hey, you're Britain, right? And I'm like, yeah, unfortunately, how you doing? And she's like, hey, um, my name's Erica. And I just wanted to know maybe if you would want to come to church tonight uh, at our college ministry. And I was like, no, I'm good. And she said, uh, well, there's going to be free food. And I was like, what time do I need to be there? Right? That's, hey, that's, I'm not, that's not a joke. That's a true story, all right? And I would be dismissed to not share all the details. So, but I go to that church that night. Um, and if I'm being honest with you, I didn't want to be there. But I was invited. And, uh, and there was, a, yeah, there was incentive for me. But at the end of the day, I, I showed up there. And I ate the free food, but I felt like I owed them that I needed to go sit through the service. But it was in that service, I was sitting in the very back corner and I heard the guy say, some of you in here, you're empty. You're exhausted. You're hoping that there's something more to life than what you're living for right now. And if that's you tonight, I just want you to get on your face. And I don't know why I did it. I'm not the type of guy still to this day to just lay on his face in random public spaces. Uh, But I did. And it was in that room that I surrendered my whole life to Jesus, and I have not looked back since. But I say all that to say it started with Erica, the girl that I haven't talked to since that day. I didn't even see her at church that night, but she walked across the quad, and she said, hey, do you want to come? Do you want to be a part of this? And I just said, yeah. But it started with her saying yes. And so I think as we look at this idea of invite, I would encourage you to think about when you've been invited right? Because as you remember those simple moments, it makes it so much easier as we go out. Because here's the, guys, here's the thing. Worst they can say is no, right? But First Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. And if you have hope in Jesus, if you have found life in Christ, it is our responsibility. It is crucial of us as a church to invite others along. That's my spiel. That was free. We're in First Corinthians chapter 5. So let's get there. Take your time. Hurry up. First Corinthians chapter five. It's going to be up on the screen or hopefully it's in the Bible in your hand. I'm going to be honest with you guys. Wasn't pumped when they were like, Hey, do you want to preach this weekend in Buckley? That was a little while ago. I was like, absolutely. Yes, I'm in. All right. You're doing first Corinthians five. And I was like, 
can I take it back? And they're like, nope, you're in, bro. You signed it in blood. So, right, you just think about what that moment was like. I'm like, let's give this one to the youth pastor. He's got it, right? First Corinthians chapter 5, you'll see here in a minute. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So Paul is starting this letter and he's saying, listen, guys, I know we got a lot going on in Corinth, right? We've been learning about this for four chapters now, but now he's kind of getting down to the nitty gritty. He's saying, listen, not only is all this other stuff going on, you have a brother, right? You have a member of your church, somebody that's claiming Christ in their life, but he is sleeping with his stepmom, right? Do you see that? And Paul is writing to them and he's saying, guys, this is a problem. This is not okay. What's going on? And so we see kind of this scandalous sin come to service just in chapter one, but then, or just in verse one, but then in verse two, Paul says, and church, listen, he's not just doing this. Look at how you're reacting. You're arrogant. You're filled with pride. Ought you not be mourning? He's asking the church in Corinth. He's saying, listen, why are we being tolerant of such sin in a brother? This is a member of our church. This is a part of the family of God. This is a man that's leaving here and proclaiming Christ in the streets. But this is the life he's living. And as a church, we're prideful and we're arrogant. Should we not be mourning this sin? Should we not be, do you see that? Do you see the difference here? He's saying you're arrogant, you're prideful. How many of us, that's where we're at with our sin in our life. We're arrogant, we're prideful. We know we deserve better. We're tolerant. Times are changing. And Paul is saying, should you not be mourning? But we'll get to that. Let's keep going. Verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus And my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, right? This is serious. This is some wording that as we get into scripture and as we're spending more time in God's word, that's kind of the type of wording that trips us up sometimes first thing in the morning before the coffee hits, right? And we're like, wait a second. So we're handing people over to Satan now when they sin. Okay, weird strategy. I think I could try it, right? That's some of us, that's where we're at. No, but, but Paul is saying, listen, one, we need to clarify, none of us have the ability to condemn anybody to hell. So I need to clarify that. Not even Paul had the ability to condemn someone to hell. That's not what he's doing here. Um, But I think what he's saying is he's saying, listen, guys, we need to let this guy know that this is not okay. And as the spiritual father of this church, as the leader of this church, I am pronouncing judgment on this man. I am saying these actions are not okay. And as a church, we need to step up and we need to do something about it. This phrasing, we're going to hand him over to Satan. Paul is saying, listen, we are going to remove him from the protection of the body. See, something that I think in our Western culture that we get twisted up sometimes or some things that we get messed up, messed up is we think that, that, that the church is privileged to have us, right? They're lucky I'm here. But, but what we're missing here is that it is a privilege to belong to the body of Christ. It is a privilege to sit in the dwelling place of the spirit of God. 
It is a privilege to be able to come and worship a good and gracious and merciful God. It is a privilege. It is not a right like we think it is. It is a privilege that we have the opportunities that we have to worship this God. And Paul is saying, listen, guys, this is a privilege. And this man is claiming Christ, but he is actively, actively living in sin. And whenever we do not take that at the, at the severity that it is, and we just allow him to continue on taking part in this privilege, right? We are setting them up for an eternal failure, right? Paul loves this man enough. He loves the church in Corinth enough to say, I'm willing to wade into difficult conversation for the sake of somebody's eternity. But I think so often in our culture, right? We hate conflict so much that we're willing to put eternity to, to the side, Right? We're not willing to stand on the truth of God's design for the sake of it might make me uncomfortable. But Paul is saying, listen, we need to remove this man from the, from the church. But as you continue to dig in to some of the context here, it's not like you read this and you're like, so if I sin, just can't come to church anymore, right? But if you continue to look at this, we see that Paul is talking more about participation in the sacraments as a church, right? Sacraments is a really fancy, churchy kind of the way we say to the tab, Christian ghetto way of talking about communion and baptism, different things like that. Things that you need to belong to the family of Christ if you were going to participate in these things with us. And so he's saying, listen, we need to remove this man from these things because we are not only deceiving ourselves, but we are deceiving him. Right? And we need to love him enough to tell him, hey, bro, this isn't it for you. If you're going to claim Christ, you need to live for him. But if you have unrepentant sin in your life, we're going to have to ask you to step away from this. Right? And it's in love, but it's stern. But why? Right? We see it at the end right there in verse 5. He says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Do you see the love in that conflict? Do you see the love in that approach that Paul has for him? He's saying, listen, yeah, we're going to do these uncomfortable things. We're going to have these uncomfortable conversations. We're going to kind of wade into this uncomfortable space. Why? For the hope that somebody, maybe someday, will turn away from their life of sin. They will repent of what is going on in their life, and they will trust in Jesus fully for the redemption of their sin. Right? Because the, the context here, what Paul is pointing to is he's saying, listen, if this guy is actually claiming Christ but living in blatant, unrepentant sin, I would challenge to think if he's actually been saved. Because I'm telling you something, the minute you actually surrender to Jesus, the minute you have actually experienced salvation in Christ, there is a, there is a, metamorph there's a transformation that happens in your heart. There's a transformation. Sin becomes unnatural. And so Paul is challenging here. If this guy is able to just do this blatantly, can we just be honest for a minute, guys? Does he actually know Jesus? Because people who actually know Jesus, their lives are transformed. They stop actively living in unrepentant sin, right? I didn't say they're perfect, right? As followers of Jesus, we're not marked by our perfection. We're marked by our direction, right? It's not about living a perfect life. It's about where are you headed, and whenever you're living in unrepentant sin, just like this guy right here, what he's saying is the direction of my life is my own. Because I know better. I deserve better. And Paul is saying, church, we have to take this seriously. We have to take unrepentance seriously. We need to remove this man from our midst for the sake of him coming to know Christ and the redemption and the life that comes. Do you see the love that Paul has here? Right? Let's keep going. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you know 
that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And it is true this morning, just like it was true last night. The whole time I was reading that, all I could think about for some reason, guys, I got to be honest, I'm sorry, this is my brain. I was reading and thinking about Texas Roadhouse Rolls with cinnamon butter. So I don't know if you've ever had that, but I think this is a good time to say that in the Psalms it says to taste and see that the Lord is good. And that is, I think, but that wasn't at all what that's talking about. That's what my brain was thinking about, and I'm pumped you guys are here. Manistee, hopefully you're awake. <laughs> but no, he's talking about, listen, this leaven, this is, a, this is an agent that is kind of dirty. It's distorts, it's, it's, it's sour. And this little bit of leaven, when it gets into the dough, it ruins the whole loaf, right? I'll say this in uh, normal terms for tabernacle. Sin, a little bit, makes your whole body bad. A little bit of sin ruins all of us. And so Paul is saying, listen, don't you understand that this little bit of sin is corrupting the whole body, right? I think sometimes we forget that we are a body. We are a body, right? So often the church in the United States has became this individual kind of sport, right? And we forget the fact that we belong to something bigger than ourselves, but we are a body. It's not just about the person in your seat every Sunday, but it is about us as a whole. And whenever somebody is living in unrepentant sin, maybe it is you, right? That affects the whole body. And I know some of us in here are like, well, not sleeping with a family member, so check that box, right? But the gossip, that affects the whole body. Bitterness, that affects the whole body. Groaning and complaining, that affects the whole body. The sin of northern Michigan men, the must be nice, that affects the whole body, right? Coveting somebody else's stuff, that affects the whole body. What you watch on your phone when nobody else is around or on the internet when your wife is out of town, that affects the whole body. What you talk about with that certain group of friends, that affects the whole body. What you do on Saturday night before you get here on Sunday morning, that affects the whole body. You see, a little bit of sin affects the whole body. It affects the whole church, but then as the individual, it also affects you. But I think so often, right, we, we fall into that temptation that we see in Romans 3, right? Where grace abounds, sin should abound more because the more I sin, the more grace I get. We're a grace church. We're all cracked pots, right? That is not a license to actively live in unrepentant sin, church. It's not. It's a reality of who we are. It's a truth that we are imperfect people, but the hope is that Christ's light will shine through those cracks, that people can see that, you know what, we are broken people. We are hurting people. What we are doing our best to live in communion with God, actively pursuing relationship with him through the surrendering of ourselves, the denying of ourselves, the repenting of our sins, fixing our eyes on Jesus and chasing after him. That's what we're marked by, Right? We need to be a church that is marked by our obedience to Christ. Repentance is a part of that obedience. It's not just asking for forgiveness. I think that that's an area that sometimes gets muddied up, right? Well, I asked for forgiveness, but did you change? It's more than just saying, oh, Lord, I'm sorry, please forgive me. What are you doing to actively, as we say in the past few weeks, I think we're seeing a staple, take that sin to the back 40. 
What are you actively doing to kill that sin in your life? Are you plugging into a fight club? Are you plugging into a tab women's group? Are you spending more time in God's word? Are you spending some time on your face maybe? What are you doing to kill the sin in your life? Because I'm telling you, if we want to go where this church has been going for a long time, it's going to take a congregation saying, you know what? We're killing sin and we're chasing Jesus. We're killing sin and we're chasing Jesus. In my own life, in the life of my brothers, and in the life of my church, we are killing sin and we are chasing Jesus because a little bit of sin corrupts the whole body. That's why we want people to join our groups. Do you see that? Right? It's not like this little thing that makes the staff feel good. It really isn't. It's because we know the effects that belonging to a Christ-centered community can have on one's life. The reason we encourage men to sit around a table with other men and God's word is because it has the power to change your life. Because there's accountability in that. There's consistency in that. There's the hope that if I'm living in sin and I sit down at that table, I've got some brothers that are going to call me out. Right? Same with tab women's groups. The hope is that we are getting into communities that are not just willing to say, hey, you're doing a good job which we are overall, guys, we're doing great. I love you guys, I'm not mad, right? But I think that the process of actively killing sin has to, whether you've heard this a thousand times or this is the first, it's a good reminder. We need to be killing sin as a church, as community, as individuals. That's why those groups are so important. That's why belonging to a body is so important. That's why church membership is really important. Um, that's something that maybe we don't say all the time. And I know some people in here are like, man, I got problems with church membership. Cool. Have a conversation with John Williams. He'll tell you why you're wrong. Um, but <laughs> as a joke, I'm kidding. Love you guys. George will tell you in Manistee, right? So, but no, it's a belonging to a process of accountability. That's what it is. And if you're taking your discipleship seriously, if you're taking following Jesus seriously, you will do everything you can so that sin can be actively killed in your life. And if you struggle with accountability, I would ask, what do you truly want to see come out of your life? Is it comfort or is it the fruit that comes from following Jesus? Let's keep going. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with the judging outsiders? It is, not those is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. In kind of those last few verses, Paul is kind of clarifying some confusion. There was an original letter that was wrote to the church at Corinth that has long since been lost, but, but many scholars and through my study believe that in that letter, Paul had wrote to them not to associate with sexually immoral people, and the church in Corinth took that as license to keep everyone that wasn't within the walls at arm's distance and saying, listen, we're not going to associate with those of the world, but Paul is coming back and he's clarifying some of that confusion. He's saying, no, listen, that wasn't at all what I said, right? Because for us not to associate with the people of the world would need for us to leave the world. That kind of takes the legs away from the Great Commission and what it looks like to make disciples. But he says, no, but if you have a brother, if you have a member of your church, if you have someone who is claiming Christ that is actively living 
And this unrepentant sin, this sexual morality, he's a swindler, he's a greed. You need not to associate that with that person. And that can connect right back to the top of where we were at with the hope that the removing from that community will create the need for more of that that will lead to repentance and redemption. Do you see that? So he's just clarifying some, some confusion for the church at Corinth. And he's saying, listen, no, we need to be with these people. We need to do everything we can to bring these people with us. The church doors are open, right? He's not saying that they're not allowed at the church. He's saying, but these sacraments, communion, something we're going to celebrate today as a church, these things are reserved for believers. And we allow people that have unrepentant sin in their life to participate in these. We are not doing a good thing, right? First, or First Corinthians chapter 11 says we are allowing that person to drink judgment on themselves. And so as a church, it's an active process of protecting people, creating awareness in people with the hope that it will lead to redemption. But I think as we look at all of these verses in chapter five, as I was kind of thinking this week, what is going on, right, with the church in Corinth? Why are, like, dang, this is crazy. And I realized something. The church in Corinth only has one problem. And the church in Buckley and the church in Manistee, right, the church in general, Today, we still just have one problem, and it's sin. We have one problem, sin. And so I think that for us to properly be able to approach that problem, we need to talk through what that problem actually is. If you've been here for a really long time, maybe this will be a good refresher. If this is your first time, hopefully we can clarify this word, sin. What is sin? So sin, right, it's an old Greek archery term that simply means to miss the mark, right? And so when I think about that, I think about the first time I got a bow, right? My older brother and I, we, we moved in with my stepdad, and it was a really cool moment because he's like, if I'm going to have boys, my boys are going to hunt. And he got us into, like, archery, and I got a 22 and a 12-gauge and a 243 and a bow all in the same day. It was a good day, all right? It was a good day. And you're like, how do I shoot them all at the same time, right? But, and so, so we get these bows, and we're starting to do the whole thing. And my brother has this sweet Matthew switchback. It was a few years, or probably like it was more than a few years ago, man. 10 something years ago, he had this sweet Matthews bow and I had like this pawn shop, what the heck, right? That's what I called it. And my brother and I, we would go out and we would shoot bows and we had the typical round bell set up with our target in front of it, right? You guys are with me, right? Northern Michigan, this works. And so we're shooting our bows and he's five years older than me. And I mean, he's just throwing dots, tight groups. I mean, he called it killing spiders. He just talked so much crap and I got better as I got older, but I mean, he's shooting good groups. And then I would get out there and I'd shoot my arrows and I'd be near it, right? I'm definitely taking a gun when I go hunting, not today, but back then. And so, but I remember every single time we would get done and my brother would go pull his final arrows and I'd be like, hey, I'll get the target, but I'm going to shoot one last group. He'd be like, all right, cool. And he'd go inside and do the whole thing. And then I would shoot my last three arrows and it never without fail, right? Maybe I'd have one or two on the target, but I'd always have one in the hay bale, right? And I'd run up there and I'd have to go find my arrow in the hay bale and I'd get it out. But then I'd take all three arrows and I'd stab them into the target to make it look like I shot a tighter group. And then I'd go running inside, Bob, you got to see this, man. You won't believe I figured it out, right? And he'd come out and he'd look at him and be like, oh, so you, you shot those. Yeah, I was 60 yards, dude. It was crazy. I had no idea what I was talking about. He's like, all those, huh? I'm like, yeah, you should have been here. He's like, oh, cool. That's awesome. But I think sometimes that's how we approach our sin, right? Is we just kind of shoot our arrows and then we draw the target around them. And then we assume that's the life we're supposed to be living based off what's happening. 
rather than trusting in God to set the target for what our life is, rather than trusting in God to set the standard that we're aiming at, rather than trusting in God's design to be what we're aiming for, right? Instead, we're kind of this group of people that's like, I'm going to shoot my targets or shoot my arrows and draw my targets later. And then I feel better about myself. I'm an archer, right? No, you're a liar. <laughs> and you still haven't killed a deer with your bow, right? No, I have. I'm joking. It's a joke. Northern Michigan, don't den- denounce me. I'll outshoot most of you. <laughs> Children. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> but no, I say all that to say, missing the mark. Missing the mark of God's set design, right? And I think we live in a world today that thinks that the target moves, that the target is changing, that if we don't like the target, we can just move it a little bit to the right and it'll make our shot look a little bit better. If we don't like the target, we'll move it a little bit to the left and it'll make our shot a little better. See the analogy I did there for you political people in here, right? Yeah, (laughs) and we shoot the target, right? And we just move the target to where we want it to be rather than trusting that God's design is set in stone. God's design is set and it has been the standard since the beginning. And if it's worth giving your life to, it needs to be giving your life to something that won't change, right? There's consistency in God's design. There's longevity in God's design. It is worth building your life on God's design. And sin is when we're living in a way that does not live to the standard God has set for us, right? But so often we think that as the world changes, so does the standard, And and I know for a lot of us, we're like, yeah, I know, man, those people, right? But it happens here too. We're doing it too. It's just as true for our church as it is anybody else. The standard that God has set in place is not changing, will not change. So we need to get to know it. We need to spend time in God's word so that we can know what our life is supposed to look like. We need to spend time in prayer and, and, and we need to spend time listening to the spirit of God so that we know when we do miss the target, how do we get back on it, right? That's the beautiful thing about when you give your life to Christ is there is an advocate, there's a helper, the spirit of God come and dwells inside of you. And now you know, right? When you shoot and you miss, you know. And then you get to make the choice. Am I just gonna pull the arrow and put it where I think it's supposed to go? Or am I gonna adjust? Am I gonna adjust? And I think that that, comes right down to the second part. What is our attitude towards sin as a church? What is our attitude towards sin? We see here in verse two, Paul talks about it. He says, and you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? What is our attitude towards sin? Are we tolerant? Are we tolerant to our sin or the sin of others? Are we prideful about our sin that we know or we deserve better? What is our attitude towards sin? And, I, and there's this word here that created an interest in me this week. I don't know, maybe you don't agree, but I, I had to look at this through a lot of lenses. Ought you not rather to mourn? What does it look like to mourn sin? Right? We mourn as a church whenever we have funerals or whenever we have different circumstances that happen. We come together as a body in those tragic moments. Those are some of the most beautiful pictures of the church is when tragedy strikes in our midst. Would you agree? Some of the most beautiful times as a church are when we mourn together. Why are we not mourning sin? Right? This is the killer of them all. This is our biggest problem as a church, and we have become numb to it. We have put ourselves at arm distance from it. It has became preference rather than conviction. So what does it look like for us as a church body to properly mourn sin together? 
right, as individuals and as a family. I think one, the proper mourning of sin, the way I would break it down as, I, as I've been reading this week is it is to look at my sin with sincerity, to acknowledge the pain that I have caused to myself, others, and God, and to turn away from it, right? But first we have to acknowledge that that sin hurt somebody, right? It hurt God. It hurt probably somebody else in my life, and it's, and it's killing me. And through that, with sincerity, we go to those different places and we ask for forgiveness, right? Whether that be going to God and saying, Lord, I'm sorry for the way that my sin hurt you today. That's not who I am. That's not who I want to be. Or we go to somebody else. You go to your brother. Go to your sister. You say, hey, I, when I snapped the other day, or hey, you know, we were getting together with a group of people. You weren't there, but, you know, you made me mad the other day, and I told them about it instead of coming to you. And then having those moments, the real moments, what do we want to see from our lives? What is our attitudes towards sin? And lastly, we ask the question, how do we properly respond to sin? How as a church do we respond to sin? How as, as followers of Jesus do we respond to the sin in our lives and in the lives of our families, right? Not just your families, your blood relatives, but our church family. How do we respond to sin? One, I feel that I need to say, because as I was sitting in my office this week, there were some moments where this was sitting heavy on the chest, right? Because I need you guys to know this, and I know we've said this to you before, but when we stand on these platforms, I'm not really talking to you. God is doing a work in my life as well, and this has been wrecking me this week to look at how do I view sin? How do I properly respond to sin? And, and a piece of that is the understanding that there is no shame right? That shame is a ploy of the enemy. And often if you find your response to sin is one of shame, I would challenge what you're believing. Because the God that I serve, the God of the Bible, the Jesus that I find in these pages, the one that dwells in my heart is one that says that it is for freedom you've been set free, not to be burdened again for the, to the yoke of slavery, right? We serve a God of redemption and of mercy and of grace. And that is not a license to sin more, but that is a license to not live in shame. But the enemy wants you to believe that when you live in that sin, when you have those moments where you fall away, that you just need to stay there because you're not good enough anymore. But no, we serve a God that says, come on home. Right? I think about the beautiful picture that we see in the prodigal son. If you're not familiar with that story, it's found in the gospels. And there's this moment where this son leaves home and he says, you know what, dad, I want my inheritance. I know better. I'm going to go spend my money how I want. Right? As some time goes by, he finds himself sleeping in the pig pen. Ever been there? Right? But then there's a moment where he comes home and he's, he's running and the father is there to greet him. And church, that is a beautiful picture of how God responds to us when we come home, when we come to surrender that brokenness. How are we responding to sin? We have to know that there is no shame. But I will say to you that how you respond to your sin will show me what you truly value. Our response to sin is the evidence of what we truly believe. Right? So as a church body, right, we talked about this in our Blood, Sweat, and Tears series, a, a way that we respond to sin as a congregation that has been set in stone by the standard of Scripture that we find in Matthew 18, right? is if it's sin in my life or sin in somebody else's life that I want to go talk to, I would hope that as a church we follow this standard. First, I go talk to them one-on-one. One-on-one. That's why groups are important. That's why fight clubs are important. That's why tab women groups are important. That's why tab students is important. Having people in your life that can hold you accountable, one-on-one, -on -one, right? You don't go talk to Pastor Martin before you go talk to them. You go talk to them. 
If they don't listen, then you go and you bring a couple more and you talk to them again. If they don't listen that time, then you get the church. Then you find a pastor to take with you. Then it comes to that piece. But if I can be honest with you, whenever you follow those first two steps to a T, like the way that scripture is designed for us to do, you often don't make it to step number three. But the question is, do you love them enough to step into conflict, to step into the awkward? And on the, back, on the other side of that, will you allow yourself to be loved enough to hear that's wrong? Like I know for me, I have some brothers in my life that will call me out. One of them is our campus pastor in Manistee, Pastor Seth. I love that man. I trust that dude with my life because I know that he cares about me. You know how I know he cares about me? He doesn't just tell me what I want to hear. He tells me when I'm doing things wrong. He calls me out and it's out of love. It's out of love for me. It's out of love for my wife. It's out of love for my future family. It's out of love for our students. That's true relationship. So how we respond to sin as an individual and as a church will be the evidence of what we truly believe. But I think as we look at sin, the thing we truly have to understand is there is only one true solution to sin in our lives. There's only one solution, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus. There is only one solution, Jesus. So as we look at the sin in our lives, as we look at these things, we have to look at them through the lens of Christ and what he has done for us, right? It's not about do more. It's not about hold on tighter. This is not a gospel of behavior management, right? This is a gospel of grace and redemption and freedom. And that comes through the finished work on the cross by Jesus Christ through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. He is seated on the throne, victory secured so that we can participate in this mission with freedom, that's how we find the solution to sin. It's not through being better. It's through more Jesus. If you want to see sin actively killed in your life, spend more time with him. Spend more time in God's word. Spend more time in prayer. I think something we do that we take advantage of sometimes, spend more time around people that are also committed to Jesus and watch how that changes you. I couldn't tell you how many times I show up to a staff meeting and I learn something new about what it looks like to follow Jesus, right? Because you surround yourself with people that are chasing after Jesus. But that's the only solution to sin, church, is it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And remember, what characterizes us is not our perfection. It's our direction. Will you keep heading towards him? Will you keep going to Jesus? In the face of failure, will you go to Jesus? In the face of hard times, will you go to Jesus? When things are growing great, will you continue to go to Jesus? He's not a last resort. He's the only solution we have, Jesus. So this weekend, we're going to participate together as a church in communion. Communion is an important part of being a church. It is what we call a sacrament. And so as the band comes back out here, we're going to do that together. But I want to, I want to plead with you on something. Please hear me. If you're here this morning in Manistee or in Buckley and you're living in unrepentant sin, there is sin in your life that is not actively being killed, right? If you have become numb to it, please, please hear this. Please don't take communion with us this morning. And that's not because of what it makes us look like. It's because the scripture is clear that when you're living in that unrepentant, blatant sin, you're drinking judgment on yourself. But... If that's you this morning, if there's sin in your life that needs killing, 
you can do it right now. It's not a magic prayer. It's just being real, being vulnerable, and being honest with Jesus and saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I want to give it all back to you. I want to give it all back to you. And then feel free to come and take communion with us. But I'm telling you, we have to be a church that's marked by killing sin and chasing after Jesus. So as we take communion, I want to remind you that this is a beautiful moment to remember who Christ is and what he's done for us. His body, right, the bread that was given for us, that was given for us. And as we take and we drink from the cup or we dip the bread in the cup, right, that is his blood that was shed for us. And if you're a believer in that, if you have given your life to Jesus, if you have trusted in him for salvation and you are living in a life, right, not marked by perfection, but a life that is directed towards him, his kingdom, and his glory, I would invite you that after we get done praying that you would take communion with us here at either one of our campuses. So if you will, let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Lord, we praise you. God, we thank you for who you are. That you're a God that showed us what it looks like. And God, this, this morning as, as we bridge the difficult, hard topic of sin, we just come to you and we say, Lord, we trust in you. We trust in you as the only solution to sin in our lives. And Lord, if there's anybody in here that maybe hasn't done that, I pray that this morning be the morning that you convict their heart. And Lord, for those of us that have maybe fallen away or we're living in unrepentant sin, I just pray that, that we can't shake it anymore, that it sits heavy, that we have to get it off our chest so that we can follow after you. So Lord, this morning we thank you that we get to celebrate, that we get to remember who you are and your finished work on the cross, Lord, your body given for us and your blood shed for us. Thank you. Thank you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.